Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. We're happy to have you here and tuning in with us, whether you're spending your morning, your afternoon, or your evening with us. Thanks for being here and thanks for tuning in. One of our upcoming themes for several of our podcast episodes focuses on social movements, organizations, and individuals who are making positive impacts within the community. So you can expect some exciting, interesting, and informational podcasts with active members of the community, along with ways that you can support and be involved in creating sustainable change. The organization that this episode highlights is Social Movement Support Lab, which is led by Jim Freeman and Dr. May Lin. And Social Movement Support Lab is designed to support movements and organizations through multidisciplinary assistance. Today's episode is with one of the leaders of Social Movement Support Lab, Dr. May Lin, who will be introducing the work that the organization does, as well as her own research and book project. So the first thing that I want to do is I just want to welcome Dr. May Lin here with us. Thank you for being here. I know, especially with the holidays and this season, it's really busy. So thank you for taking time out to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you. Would you be able to introduce yourself as well as your role within Social Movement Support Lab? Sure. Um, yes. So I am a new, relatively new postdoc at IRISE, and my specific role is on helping to launch the Social Movement Support Lab. Um, I just started September 1st, um, so it's just been a couple months so far. Um, of really working with Jim and also folks like Lexi Freeman, um, Daniel Kim, and really our community partners. Um, and so I would say it um, includes really all aspects of the work, things like you know working with our community organization partners. A lot of what I've been doing is really reaching out to folks at DU who are mm -hmm. interested in similar things, you know, faculty and staff, and we want to connect with students more as well. Um, so yeah, it's really been a lot of different things, which I have to say that I enjoy because uh, I'm a Gemini, and so I think <laughs> I'm doing a lot of different things. <laughs> I, love that, I love that. I'm an Aquarius, so. I think oh, fellow air sign, fellow air sign. see it. <laughs> I love hearing about that. I'm also a huge fan of Daniel Kim. He's done amazing yes. work at DU2 yes. and teaching us how to be community organizers and teaching us how to do the work. So he's amazing. Yes. Within the lab, are there any current projects that you all are working on? Yeah, so a lot of it is really building on the work that Jim Freeman has been doing for you know a long time as really a civil rights lawyer. And really, we are supporting grassroots organizing groups that are led by the most impacted folks, that is most impacted by white supremacy, racial injustice, and really the manifestation of overinvestments in mass criminalization and incarceration and underinvestments in social supports. You know, these are the issues that these organizations are working on. So in short, we're working with black and brown led organizations on campaigns to divest from policing and criminalization and to invest in social supports, education, you know, health, housing, and really racial justice. To name some projects more specifically, you know, one thing that we're going to have coming out in January is a data dashboard that mm -hmm. tracks over time the ways that states, counties, and major cities 
have, again, overinvested in policing, you know, juvenile criminal justice systems and underinvested in all these other things. It's going to be really a tool that community organizations and movements can use to kind of make their case, to understand how this has been not something that just came out of nowhere. It's not a problem that just appeared, but it's really about decades of this trend. And I think it really highlights well this disparity, right? Because you know that there's this... um, argument, you know, arguments over defunding the police. And at the same time, something we really normalized is, again, defunding education, defunding housing, defunding health, defunding, you know, supports, defunding youth development. And this is, you know, just kind of a tool for organizations to show that and to really engage in their own cities and engage their members and what that looks like and what the lived experience of that is. That's one project. We partner with a lot of other organizations Again, supporting them on different stages of this campaign. Um, mm-hmm. Just to share, you know, kind of one example, um, Jim and Lexi taught a class in Corbell um, this last fall. That was a practicum where master's students were helping organizations with different needs. So one of the partners that we work with, along with Forward Change, is a Black Organizing Project which uh, is based in Oakland. And after a decades-long campaign, they won with the George Floyd Resolution a dismantling of the Oakland School Police Department. And so now they're working and they're really building on the community power that they've uh, led and made happen in Oakland, you know, with their base, with their members, Mm -hmm. um, to really implement that in a way that can not just kind of reenact policing in different forms, but really be truly transformative. And I think there's a lot of things that can be learned in different campaigns that are happening in different areas from how that's implemented. And so, for example, um, you know, we had students working on projects where they're kind of researching what the alternatives to police look like. Um, So that's kind of an example of the type of project that we support and how students and and faculty can get involved with specific pieces. In the summary on the website, you highlight the multidisciplinary assistance aspect of it. For me, that highlighted this idea that we all have our individual tools that we bring to make a work successful, to make a movement successful. I want to ask a bit more about the multidisciplinary assistance element of Social Movement Support Lab and why that's a foundational tool in the organization. I love that point that you made about the different tools that we bring and the different expertise that we bring. And I think that's exactly a part of you know, why Jim and I really focus on this multi-interdisciplinary aspect of it. When you really like read and start to, and listen to organizers, but also read, you know, great scholars like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, you know, the more you learn, the more you see how this problem, you know, the problem of overinvestment and criminalization, underinvestment in social supports is not a single discipline problem. It's a problem that exists in so many realms, but is also entangled amongst all those realms. You know, it's a legal problem, it's a social problem, it's um, an economic problem, it's an intersectional problem. You know, white supremacy manifests in so many different areas of life and different institutions in ways that are all interconnected. And so because of that, in terms of like support that movements need, organizing and building the leadership of the most impacted folks is really at the core of organizing. But other aspects of our, our, you know, we need folks who have serious kind of like economic training to be able to say, say movement groups wanna know, you know, what's the cost benefit of 
divesting from policing and sort of investing in other social supports? What would sort of be the economic impact? We need mm -hmm. folks to kind of have the expertise to be able to say model that if that's something the movement groups say would be helpful, right? Other things that we can support with, I think, you know, I studied ethnic studies in undergrad and in my master's, and I think ethnic studies and its kind of interdisciplinary approach helps us really understand kind of ways of analyzing the problem, but also sort of solutions that are not bound to just one discipline. Mm -hmm. Another example is, you know, needing legal and policy expertise to sort of draft mm -hmm. up what some of the different policies might look like. And we need folks in the arts, we need folks in communications, we need folks who are master storytellers to kind of appeal to hearts and minds in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I think those are some of the examples of why we really need multidisciplinarity, um, because the problem is not one that is of a single discipline. Yeah. I think that's really powerful because a lot of times people think that you either have to be a specific kind of activist to create change or you have to study a specific field that really does show that that's not true and that whatever tools you bring to the table can be used to create sustainable change. Yeah, and I think, you know, folks in different, well, change needs to happen everywhere, right? In every mm -hmm. type of space, there needs to be, for example, social expertise amongst, say, science practitioners. I think the pandemic highlights so much that we can't solve things only with science, but we also need social science and vice versa too, you know? I mean, I think, yeah, your point is, is really, really important. So kind of moving away from Social Movement Support Lab for just a second, on your website, which you can find at mayhlin.com, I was looking at your book project and I must say I got super <laughs> excited with reading over it. First off, for let me introduce before I get ahead of myself, is the name of your book project is Emotional Counterpublics, Feeling Racial Justice. And again, for our listeners, if you want to follow along with us, the website is mayhlin.com. Something that you said that in defining what emotional counterpublics are that I want to highlight is you say emotional counterpublics are spaces where youth harness emotions to redefine and expansively enact social change, such as expansively reimagining strategies for racial and educational equity and healing wounds from structurally induced trauma. So the first thing that came to mind for me was just this idea of emotions and that often within movements, emotions are almost seen as a liability due to the emotional toll that dealing with injustice, seeing injustice does. But what your book seems to do is kind of reframe emotions as being a tool and not a liability. I would just like to learn more about what led you to dive into the reframing of emotions as a tool and then who or what initially introduced kind of the importance of emotions within community organizing. Yeah, I think the way that you put it of like emotions as being a liability is so spot on. And it's really a big reason why I wanted to write and capture the lessons that I learned from being in community with youth organizing groups. Um, you know, why I wanted to do that in the way that I did. So I'll say, first of all, you know, that I went into my PhD and I didn't know what exactly my dissertation was going to be, but I had come from spaces of youth development of community organizing against gentrification and of just wanting to be a PhD to really support movements. I didn't want to just extract from them, but I wanted to really figure out how to leverage my resources to support their leadership 
and to listen to them and to fill in wherever I could for their needs. And so that being said, I, yeah, I want to take a step back and sort of just share the origin story. So um, I have been, I'm from LA, but you know, I have been living in New York before. Um, and when I moved back to LA for my PhD program, I asked a mentor, um, Dr. Veronica Tariquez, you know, what's like a youth organizing group that is really building coalitions across, you know, different racialized groups uh, in California. And so she pointed me to this group called Californians for Justice. Mm-hmm. And they're a statewide youth organizing group um, that really follows the leadership of young people, specifically, you know, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, to enact educational racial justice. And so, you know, I was lucky enough that um, the ED at the, and she's still the ED, Taryn Ishida, you know, they have, they use research. And so they kind of had a space for me to support them in terms of the research needs that they had. And so I've, you know, been in community and and learned so much from Californians for Justice in the past. I first got involved with them in 2014. And I think what, what this concept of really embracing emotions and feelings came from was from spending time with CFJ and learning from how they did things and how they enacted change in many ways. Mm-hmm. So CFJ has been involved in, you know, like educational racial justice just campaigns and one, one huge thing for educational justice, like changing how public school funding works in California. Um, they're a part of a coalition that won that. And that is something that is huge policy wise and, you know, is very important for the lived experience for um, black and brown students in disinvested uh, districts, school districts and schools, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I really learned from one that, them was in the time that I spent with them starting in 2014, that they really started to also expand how they saw change. I mean, I think organizing and especially the kind of organizing that youth organizing groups use hasn't has never been only about structural and policy change. Yeah. Sometimes because of the cultures and movements, um, sometimes that can be the dominant focus. And sometimes there's, because you're so busy, sometimes there's kind of less time and less focus that is spent on sort of like individual or interpersonal transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, also, because we don't always have like models for that, you know? Yeah. And so one thing that CFJ really adopted was um, this kind of approach called transformative organizing which recognizes that, you know, because of the ways that white supremacy and patriarchy and colonialism, all of those operate on so many levels from the very granular, from the psychological, from the internal to the huge macro and structural, that means that our organizing has to address all of those. Um, So that means that we also have to really work on the internal and recognize the ways that white supremacy warps our sense of self, um, how we view ourselves, how we treat ourselves and how we treat each other. And so I really saw and learned from the ways that CFJ adopted um, those practices within their organizing. So for example, dedicating you know, more time to kind of processing and talking about the trauma that young people were experiencing because you know, we're experiencing because there's been so much of that yeah. in terms of you know, state, state-sanctioned violence against Black folks, the the immense, you know, anti-immigrant kind of violence happening, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, really spending time to recognize, hey, it's not just about us directing our efforts to the external, but how that really affects us deeply and taking time to process that and to recognize how it affects our bodies and our psyches. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a roundabout way, I guess, of saying that that's what really inspired me to kind of focus on that and speak to that and uplift that kind of work that youth organizing groups are doing 
because, you know, as you said, emotions have often been treated as a liability. Personally, for me, you know, I have been in organizing spaces where emotions are not treated seriously. It's like, okay, if you're feeling sad, whatever, let's get on. There's work to do, right? Like, you know, suck it up, be strong, you know, and, and I've been in spaces like that where that has really been the culture. What really inspired me to write more about it. And as I started to read more about it, you know, I really learned that there's such a tradition of doing this amongst like women of color. And there's so many black and indigenous and women of color um, feminists, Mm -hmm. Um, movement leaders, scholars who have have written about this and argued for this for a long time. Yeah. Um, So just to give a shout out, you know, there's Dr. Jennifer Nash, who writes about Black feminism as a tradition of what she calls love politics. And she Mm -hmm. writes about how, you know, she looks at bell hooks and Alice Walker, June Jordan, Audre Lorde, and quote, you know, love for whom, quote, love acted as a doing um, and a plea to unleash the radical imagination, end quote. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's um, also this woman, Esther Arma, who talks about the concept of emotional justice, of sort of the intergenerational trauma that impacts Black folks and how we need to really give voice to trauma and counter narratives. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's also, you know, Dr. Beltran in iRise, who also writes about, you know, digital storytelling and healing for, um, Mm -hmm. she has an article about Maori uh, Maori communities. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's so many um, healing cultures and ways of embracing emotions and feeling from um, that come from feminist traditions that also come from our cultures that have really been suppressed by imperialism, white supremacy, patriarchy. Um, And so I think, um, again, it's sort of recuperating these traditions that have have really been suppressed. And I think pushing back against kind of the masculinist ethos that can get embodied even in movements that tell us that you know, feelings are irrational or whatnot. Mm. So that was a very long-winded way, I think, of, of kind of responding. But um, yeah, I loved the way you put it and wanted to say it was both, you know, for me learning from youth organizing groups and then kind of reading more about these things that I myself had not known about before or had made assumptions about before. You got you, got you. Thank you for that. I yeah. was taking notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, writing these names down. Yes, yes, I'm happy to happy to share citations or anything. <laughs> when you were talking, I was just saying about the idea of healing resistance or mm-hmm. the idea of being able to just be human and to have emotions is something within movement specifically. It's something that was just recently introduced to me, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I've been in spaces where it's been go, go, go. You know, and if you have a moment, step out, do your thing, you know, but when you come back, like (laughs) be ready to sit down and get to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's just a powerful way. I think it's a humanizing thing first to acknowledge that we're humans who are dealing with these awful things. And because we're human, we're gonna have emotions and there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with those emotions. Mm-hmm. And then there was something you said too that I highlighted is you were talking about white supremacy and you specifically said that it warps our sense of self. Mm-hmm. And I was like, <laughs> gotta write that down because that's also that people, something that doesn't really get talked about that much. Mm-hmm. 
white supremacy isn't just something that affects maybe someone's physical body, but also affects your emotional body. It affects your self-confidence, your self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think about, for example, California's for Justice, uh, CFJ, they had this whole campaign because they recognize that even after they won policy things, that there's still these deep beliefs, for example, about black and brown youth that make it hard to implement kind of equitable policies. And so uh, I'm gonna bring it back to this sense of self in a second. Um, But for example, you know, these, what they call the belief gap and has been discussed about in literature, this idea that, you know, a lot of times educators who, who are not kind of, you know, who don't kind of have an analysis of, of, you know, racial, uh, racial power dynamics um, can oftentimes have this uh, subconscious or overt uh, intentional difference in how they view students, right? And so these racialized assumptions of black and brown students as not being as capable Mm -hmm. um, as white or say East Asian students. And that really, CFJ noticed that it also really impacts how students see themselves and how they view themselves as capable. Because if you're surrounded by teachers you know, who don't believe that you're capable of certain things. And this is also true for like English language learners. Mm-hmm. Um, they experience this a lot. That's gonna also deeply impact your sense of self, um, your belief in your own capabilities. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very, it's kind of hard to say that, and I think this is why transformative organizing comes in because it's not just about telling you to believe in yourself. Because how can you believe in yourself if you're surrounded by all these structures and people in power who don't believe in you? And so I think, you know, there's so many parts of it. I do think that even recognizing that we do have to change the outside, you can also, I think part of the reason that the work that organizing and moving groups is so important is that at least they do create a space for youth to see themselves as agents of change. And that kind of space and being in a space where you're surrounded by that ethos, where people believe in you, where they nurture you to have your voice and they know that you're smart and that you are capable, mm-hmm. um, that, that is a big piece of being able to change, you know, teachers' beliefs and institutional practices. And so, yeah, I guess what I would say is like, you know, it's not just about telling people to believe in yourself, but it is um, mm-hmm. it's important to create spaces that have that culture and that kind of give young folks the skills to see themselves again as leaders um, and as really capable of, as holding a lot of wisdom and knowledge and expertise and of being able to enact change. Mm-hmm. I feel like I went in a different direction. <laughs> no, you answered my question. <laughs> Wandering. <laughs> I think that also works kind of perfect as a perfect segue back to your book because and reading the summary. Oh, and I also wanted to give a quick shout out to California Justice, which I believe the website is caljustice.org. So caljustice.org for those of you who would like to check them out and see the work and the wonderful work that they're doing in California. But going back to your book and kind of what you were talking about students and youth, you talk about counterpublics and you highlight the three dimensions of it. So self, interpersonal dynamics, number two, and engaging in structural change is number three. And then when you were talking, there were two of your articles specifically that you were also a accompanying author on. And you can find these also on Maylin's website. And the first article is entitled, Why Relationship-Centered Schools Matter, 
for lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, transgender, and gender non-conforming students. And the second report is called Why Race and Relationships Matter in California Schools. And so for me specifically, both of those kind of embodied the one dimension of interpersonal dynamics and the importance of having healthy relationships specifically between teachers and students in high schools and working with youth. I kind of wanted to highlight that because in what you were saying, you were kind of mentioning a lot of the same things that you mentioned in the summary of your book for the interpersonal dynamics. With these two specifically, the question that came to mind was how does identity influence the importance and the impact of interpersonal relationships within the community? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. And I think something that this question, you know, helped me reflect on was that, you know, even in the in the um, description of my book project and thinking on my dissertation, um, one thing that I really want to do more is kind of bring out the role of difference. So I worked with CFJ, but another group that I've been really privileged to spend time with and learn from is a group called Kamai Girls in Action, or KGA, which is based in Long Beach. And they specifically work with Kamai young folks and also South, um, other Southeast Asian young folks in Long Beach. And I wanted to bring that up just because I think um, even as there's commonalities in terms of how BIPOC communities uh, experience white supremacy, there's also really specific um, contexts and cultures and histories that are that are really, really important. And I think, you know, these kind of two examples of, for example, thinking about race and relationship and really uh, queer and transgender and gender nonconforming students made me think about how I want to um, lift that up more and, and point that out as something that is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, now, th- now reflecting on, you know, the importance of, of difference and intersecting social positioning, how that's important for relationships. Let me kind of, you know, reflect back on uh, an example. So for this example, I'll, I'll go back to CFJ because they're working on these campaigns called um, relationship-centered schools. And that kind of demand for centering relationships and education came from students leading this action research where they canvassed, I think it was like around 2000 or probably more students and and students across California said that the most important aspect of their education was having a teacher, having an adult on campus who cared about them and who believed in them. And so their, you know, this, their campaign for relationship center schools really came out of that how that campaign has kind of evolved and deepened over time is to recognize that we need an explicit analysis of racial justice, of what this means for queer students, what this means for English learners, and also what this means for how race and racism is experienced differently amongst, say, you know, um, Black, different Latinx, different um, Southeast Asian groups, for example. So an example of this, you know, is that in educational policy, because of youth organizing, there has been an increasing focus on kind of health and well-being, things like um, social emotional learning, trauma-informed education. Mm-hmm. But as groups and scholars have pointed out, if you kind of enact that and you assume blindness towards difference, um, whether it's color blindness or like not recognizing specific experiences of English language learners and queer and trans, um, gender non-conforming youth and trans youth, then sometimes you can enact the same problems inadvertently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, social emotional learning can, you know, sometimes focus on regulating emotions and, and managing them in a way that sort of doesn't recognize, you know, 
if you're a marginalized student, why wouldn't you be angry? Like you are saying things that impact your community and your daily life in ways that it would be understand. It's understandable to be mad. So, so if instead those approaches centered that experience, then it wouldn't be about kind of regulating your emotions. I think it would be about giving space to them. Another really interesting that, I, and I think that, and so that's one point. And I think another piece about the relationships and difference, it's just that um, we really need structures. We need structures and investment to enact that. So it's not just about asking teachers to build better relationships. It's actually like, you know, teachers are not invested in, schools are not invested in. So if you're a teacher and you have 45 students to a class, how are you going to build a relationship? <laughs> so it's not about just those internal dynamics, but also recognizing the schools that, you know, are predominantly black and brown are also the schools that have been disinvested in for decades and centuries. Mm -hmm. um, and also that we need to invest in those schools and we need to invest in teachers. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of it is, you know, we need to also listen to students and give students from different lived experiences really a voice to, mm -hmm. to enact what that change would look like. Mm -hmm. um, so I think those, those are two points about the relationships, that relationships are tied to structural and systemic uh, inequalities, but also possibilities in, in terms of investment. Um, and also that, you know, these practices should be more attentive to differences in power dynamics. We kind of covered a little bit of the interpersonal dynamic aspect of the three dimensions that you speak up for counterpublics. But I also kind of wanted to allow you to define for yourself the all three of them or the other two that we missed, self and engaging in structural change. Sure. I think one aspect of the self that I didn't mention yet is, you know, for because of the, the strain that these young people's families are under because they're dealing with, you know, systemic poverty and injustice. A lot of times young people are um, put in positions where they are caring for younger siblings, caring for elders because their parents are working long hours. In short, they're really um, caring for a lot of folks, but not themselves. They're not encouraged to care for themselves, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm at a point where I'm getting old, but, but you know, I would visit these high before the pandemic, you know, I, I would visit yeah. young people at their high schools. And I think just being in that space reminded me of how kind of kind of uh, deprives you of all the things that you need. Like I had, yeah. you know, you're kind of forced to rush from class to class. If you're in a big school, you know, students would literally be running because they're getting in trouble. If they don't get to the next class. Your lunch is like 30 minutes. You just like really don't have time to like take care of your bodily needs in a way that I think is really inhumane. You know, like I had a student who, cause she'd be leading like the chapter, school-based chapter club. And she wouldn't have time to go and like get water. So mm -hmm. always make sure to like bring enough water in my water bottle so I could give her something. Like, you know, like it's just like basic mm -hmm. human needs. That's that's um, dis disinvested schools, you know, yeah. are not um, positioned to provide for their students. Um, so all that to say that, you know, self-care, I think there's rightful critiques that no self-care should not be a replacement for the structural. But at the same time, you know, as organizing groups often cite Audre Lorde in pointing out, you know, self-care is an act of kind of political warfare. And in part, that's because of the ways that young, I think really young women of color in particular are not set up and are discouraged from caring for themselves that 
you know, organizing groups by trading time for, by encouraging self-care, that is a really important aspect of resistance because of these logical needs. Um, so I wanted to say that about the self. And then in the structural change, yeah, I mentioned, you know, some of these campaigns, but KGA has been at the lead of, you know, this invest in youth campaign. And there's um, several campaigns like this across California and, and maybe other parts of the U.S. that I'm not aware of, um, which are, again, really asking um, cities, for example, to invest in a youth development fund. And again, they have done analysis that compares the amount of money that's spent on suppression and punishment and policing and yeah. it completely dwarfs, you know, the amount spent on like youth development programs. Mm -hmm. You know, people need things to help them thrive and, you know, to, of course, to do well in school, but also to figure out what it is that you're passionate about and just explore different aspects of the human experience. And that yeah. is something that has been just like deeply defunded. And so I guess the point I wanted to make about that is that um, it's really about what I, what I really admire about KG is like their focus on kind of like care and nurturing and love, both in their interpersonal spaces, but also how they demand that of cities. So mm -hmm. actually our educa uh, education systems, our cities, our budgets, sounds weird to say, but they should care for human beings. Like, mm -hmm. put, And if you say that you care, put your money where your mouth is. You know, that's another thing. So you sometimes, you oftentimes you hear politicians saying one thing and not, not acting you know, in a way that is aligned with that. Like you can say mm -hmm. that you care all you want. If you're not putting money into programs and systems that care for people, then that's not systemic care. Mm -hmm. So, you know, structural change is kind of like enacting what organizations are doing for each other and for themselves, demanding that cities, you know, do something similar. Yeah. Thank you for those. I didn't want those to get lost. So I wanted to- Oh, make thank sure. you. Yeah, thanks for asking. <laughs> so cover those because they were super important. While you were kind of talking, I was thinking about both the interpersonal dynamics and self and structural change. I was thinking about my own high school experience mm. and in noticing how many, the idea of self-care was definitely not there. It was either mm -hmm. you're trying to be competitive, trying to get mm -hmm. that A, trying to get the high SAT, or you were just go, go, go. Like you said, yeah. there's not that much time to get from class to class, Yeah, 25 minutes to eat. So the idea of self-care was definitely not really there. And then also the first high school that I went to was, wasn't very diverse at all. Mm -hmm. So firsthand, I kind of got to see how the few black students and the few people of color who were there were treated differently treated as as less smart mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I really <laughs> never noticed unless for their athletic ability and so I was thinking about how different my experience would have been how different their experiences would have been if that support that interpersonal dynamic would have been there mm -hmm. and I think that would have more positively impacted because high school is hard like that's a mm -hmm. trick that's you're going through a lot yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 I just was highlighting how important I think that really is yeah and and what you're um thanks for sharing that and I think what you're bringing up to is just the fundamental tension is that the folks who need self-care the most are put in a position where they don't really have that kind of luxury um yeah. because you know there's kind of that that adage that many folks have pointed out which is that you know 
um, black and brown folks, black and brown women have to work twice as hard, if not three, four, five times as hard to be, you know, recognized for the same achievements as white folks. Um, and I have a, a great colleague, Rasan Mahadeo, who talks about that in terms of racialized time. Uh, he, he researches, uh, you know, uh, youth and youth of color and how they experience time. And they talk about, you know, how they feel like they have much less time than, than white folks. Um, and that's something, you know, I um, really, really saw a lot and, and I think about a lot as well, just like racialized and gender time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the point is, I think, again, it's like kind of similar to the believing in yourself thing. It's like yeah. it's to tell people to believe in yourself. It's not enough to tell people that they should do self-care, especially if you're in a position where you are forced to work way harder than everyone else to cat, um, to basically bridge you know, these structural inequities, because you're structurally put at a disadvantage where you have to work harder, um, but you're also perceived because you're perceived, you know, not as being capable. There's so many reasons why you put in a position of having to work harder. So yeah, I think that's why the different levels of transformative organizing are so important, that it's not just about telling people to do self uh, care, yeah. <laughs> creating the cultures and the possibilities um, yeah. that really make that possible. So mm-hmm. we have to also fix our school systems. Uh, We have to change a lot of things. But I do think it does make a difference to at least have a culture or like a model for for taking the time for it when needed. But all of it goes together. You know, we need all these different aspects of it. Absolutely. I think that goes back to the multidisciplinary assistance that we were talking about too, is different. It's all connected essentially yeah yeah different things impact different things also that kind of ties into what we were talking about at the beginning with black lives matter movement and the focus on police brutality but also noticing how that's in the schools Mm -hmm. and noticing Mm -hmm. that when we're talking about policing it's also in the education Mm -hmm. system so Mm -hmm. also acknowledging how that is impacting the experiences of students even in a place where they're supposed to be just focused on learning and growing old yes yes yes. yeah 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 i think there's a new anthology that just came out around black black lives matter at school i think Mm -hmm. which i want to check out and then there's also um, a great book by bettina love i believe is her name about like abolitionist teaching Mm -hmm. um, and abolitionist teaching as, as care i had one last question for you and this is kind of connected to what we've talked about, but also I think we've basically answered this already with social movement support lab, and then also talking about Californians for justice. But does the conversation specifically around your book or honestly around any aspect that we've discussed today, does it shift, say we're ta- not talking about necessarily youth, but if we're talking about young adults, so does it shift in the mm-hmm. college education system? Does it shift in work? with coworkers. Yeah, I this I love this question and I was really trying to think about how to answer it and the answer is I think it's always um, important to think about difference in different contexts. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I imagine that there's overlaps. I mean, reflecting on my own experience, yeah. right? Let me just say that academia can be a very cruel place and yeah. I had a lot of experience, you know, I went, I went through a lot of personal things um, mm-hmm. in my PhD, but I also experienced a lot of just very toxic cultures. And I became, I, you know, there were just big chunks of time when I was just like enraged, <laughs> both mm-hmm. that, you know, what I was directly experiencing, but also what was going on in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. And 
you know, one thing I really thought about a lot was like how there was no space for that, you know, because you're like sort of forced to be professional and the people who are the perpetrators of why I and, you know, other students felt enraged really have the upper hand in terms of power dynamics. And so they were always able to make us seem irrational or, you know, they have power to like kick people out of programs or to ruin your career and things like that. And so there's certainly overlaps, um, but I do always think it's important to, to look at different contexts. Um, yeah, and, and I think, um, I didn't get to mention this before, but I do wanna give a shout out to sort of other, other scholars, especially women of color who I'm really shaped by, which include, um, you know, I think Cheryl, Cheryl Matias, I think was at DU for a little bit and she has really, really great work on emotions and whiteness and, and like education. Um, and then there's also Adia Wingfield who writes about emotions and emotional labor in um, work contexts. And I think, you know, she has a, a recent book on kind of like black medical workers. And I'm not sure if the emotions piece is a part of it, but I think, you know, these different contexts do matter. And I can say that part of the reason I focused so much on healing and emotions and emotional justice was my own personal rage and just like deep feeling of grief uh, and dehumanization like in my own experience in academia. And I will say that's part of why I'm attracted to, you know, spaces like I rise and try to enact interpersonal dynamics of care and generosity and kindness in my own relationships with other. That's, that's something I really learned from my mentors and folks who I did see good models of in academia, which was mostly women of color, folks like Veronica or Jane John, folks, you know, there were really women of color who were models of, of how to do that differently. And the models that I saw were that of enacting just like generosity, expansiveness, care for their students and for each other. Uh, so it's a long winter way, I guess, is, uh, maybe tying it back to my own personal experience of higher education. First off, I just want to thank you for all the work that you're doing. I want to thank you for your book concept, because I think this is a really important topic that sadly doesn't get discussed enough. So I just want to highlight that and just say first, thank you. And I'm excited for when the book comes. I'll be the first to uh, say. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much, Karis, for, you know, these really wonderful questions and such a, you know, just listening deeply and for this conversation. And I'm excited to learn more. I know that you've been playing this big leadership role. So I'm excited for our future conversations and to learn from you. And yeah, I just want to give a shout out. I think, you know, all this that I'm, writing is just kind of trying to distill lessons that I've learned. And I'm hoping that I can kind of co-write this book with some of the community organizations that I've learned so much from, because it really comes from their knowledge. I'm just trying to, I guess, uh, do the labor of, of putting some words to it, which is, you know, everything that I've learned from them and again from my mentors as well. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Rage Podcast. This podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE, at the University of Denver. For more information about us and the work that we do, please visit irise.du.edu. In support of this podcast, and to ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, 
please subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you are listening to us on. The music for this podcast is by Amin Maxwell, and the title of the song is Good Morning. Thank you again for listening and tuning in with us, and we'll see you next time.